Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. We need only look up at the moon to its violently pockmarked surface to be reminded of the sheer number of loose celestial bodies that are hurtling through space at any one time, liable to collide with us at any moment. The number of craters covering the moon's exposed silvery crust is estimated to be 9,137, with many clearly visible to the naked eye, and many others long since buried by later impacts. Considering the Moon's surface is only 7.4% the size of the Earth's, that gives you some indication of just how many comets, asteroids, and more often, meteorites, are likely to have collided with this planet since it was first formed over 4.5 billion years ago. Back in October 2017, astronomer Robert Werrick of the University of Hawaii was stationed at the Haleakala Observatory on the summit of the island of Maui's Haleakala volcano when he spotted something unusual close to the sun. The observatory utilises a panoramic survey telescope and rapid response system known as the PanStars-1 telescope to scan the solar system for any dangerously large celestial bodies that stray a little too close for comfort. Through it, on that extraordinary day in October, Werrick observed a small trail of light moving away from the sun, which he immediately assumed at first was simply a passing comet. However, when he checked back at the previous night's data, something was amiss. The object, which was moving at a speed of 196,000 miles per hour, wasn't where it should have been, according to the data. Jumping onto the phone, Werrick contacted his friend Marco McKelly at the European Space Agency and explained his predicament. A few days later, with the help of the ESA's Optical Ground Station Telescope in Tenerife, the pair began to watch the object more closely. And the rest, as they say, is history. The object, first named Rama after the Arthur C. Clarke novel Rendezvous with Rama, was later named Oumuamua, 
a Hawaiian word that translates to English as the first messenger or scout from the distant past to reach out, because what Werrick had discovered was the first known object to ever have entered our solar system from deep interstellar space. But that wasn't all. With Oumuamua found to be accelerating away from the Sun through some kind of non-gravitational propulsion, astronomers first classified it as a comet, since unlike an asteroid, a comet is comprised partly of frozen gas. The frozen gas helps to propel the object through space when it gets released by the heat of any star it happens to be passing, which in turn creates the comet's distinctive tail and coma the fuzzy glow made of ice and dust that forms around its nucleus when it's heated up. Only, when the astronomers were able to get a closer look at Oumuamua, they were surprised to find it didn't have a tail or a coma, resulting in it being reclassified as an asteroid. However, it didn't quite fit the characteristics of the average asteroid either, being oddly long and flat in shape, while its unusual trajectory and rate of acceleration was also difficult to reconcile with this new classification. In the end, it was given an entirely new designation, with astronomers agreeing to call it simply an interstellar object. The following year, two Harvard University researchers, Shmoyo Biali and Abraham Loeb, made a startling suggestion. Could it be, they thought, that the reason scientists were struggling to account for the object's peculiar behaviour was because unlike the celestial bodies they were seeking to compare it to, this one was entirely artificial in nature. In other words, as they put it, maybe Oumuamua wasn't either a comet or an asteroid, but rather a fully operational probe deliberately sent to the vicinity of Earth by an alien civilization. It certainly makes you wonder about some of the many things that have fallen to Earth over the years. You're listening to Unexplained, and I'm Richard McLean Smith. Right at the far eastern fringes of Russia, in the Primorsky Krai region, close to the Sea of Japan, lies the sparse mining town of Daunogorsk. Just like the name implies, which translates in English to Far in the Mountains, the town sits at the bottom of a narrow valley formed by the Rudnaya River, surrounded on all sides by sprawling forests of Korean pine and vast stretches of low-lying, pyramid-shaped mountains. Having first been established as a small mining settlement in 1897 due to the rich concentration of lead and zinc in the area, today it is home to just under 40,000 people, many of whom serve the commercial mining industry. And it was there, late one clear night in January 1986, that an object was seen moving across the sky at speed before smashing into the side of Izvestkovaya mountain, a large peak that overshadows the town to the north, also known locally as Height 611 on account of its height in metres. The object, described by witnesses as being a near-perfect sphere with a reddish hue like burning steel, was said to have moved completely silently through the air as it veered toward the mountain, only for it to jerk up suddenly, then stop 
before dropping out of the sky. Two girls who saw it from the street described hearing a thud as it crashed into the mountain's dense forest covering, then watched with alarm as a small fire blossomed out of the darkness at the base of a cliff on the mountain's southern side. As news of the event began to spread around the region, it eventually made its way to Dr. Valery Dvodzilny from what was then known as the Soviet Union Academy of Sciences Far East Department of the Investigation Committee for Anomalous Aerial Phenomena. Five days later, Dvodzilny arrived in Dalnogorsk to investigate. Setting off on the morning of February 3rd, Zvodzvilny's team headed up into the snow-covered mountains with only a vague sense of where exactly the object had crashed. It wasn't long before one of the team spotted a large area of exposed rock and dirt surrounded by an otherwise thick carpet of snow where something had clearly been burning. And scattered throughout the area were multiple metallic-looking fragments of something reported to have appeared artificial that had recently smashed on the ground. Some of the fragments were said to resemble splintered pieces of silica, while others were little balls of a dull, silvery-looking metal. Most peculiar of all were the pieces of some kind of wire netting comprised of tiny metallic fibres. On the edge of the site, they found a tree stump that had a potent chemical odour that appeared to be coated in varnish. It was only when they got closer that they saw the stump had in fact melted, something that wasn't possible at less than 3,000 degrees Celsius. A pile of light grey ash was also found in the middle of the site, which was bagged up along with the rest of the material. After taking numerous pictures of their discovery, Dvodzilny had all of it flown 6,000 kilometres to the Siberian branch of the Academy of Sciences in Omsk for further analysis. According to Paul Stonehill, who wrote about the incident along with fellow UFO researcher Philip Mantle in their 2017 book, Russia's Roswell Incident, what the scientists found left them completely baffled. Looking first at the metal spheres, they found them to be comprised of a combination of iron, manganese, nickel, chromium, tungsten, cobalt, silica dioxide and molybdenum. Though not especially startling in and of itself, the combination of materials revealed the objects to be an alloy that had most likely been manufactured. Next, they turned to the strange mesh-like material. After placing it under the microscope, it was found to be comprised of a series of threads, each measuring a mere 17 microns wide, that had been plaited together, a micron being equivalent to one thousandth of a millimetre. Within many of the threads, a single gold wire was found, said to have a concentration of 1,100 grams per metric tonne, far higher than anything found in the region, where a concentration of only 4 grams per metric tonne is considered enough to make gold deposits economically viable. Other materials said to have been found in the threads were silver, nickel, alpha-titanium, molybdenum and beryllium. According to Stonehill, when placed in a vacuum and melted, 
Some of the elements are reported to have completely disappeared, leaving only molybdenum, which had not been present in the chamber at the beginning of the experiment. One scientist, Dr. Kulikov, of the Academy of Sciences Chemistry Institute, is said to have described the nature of the mesh as being impossible to understand. With another, Dr. Vizotsky, allegedly stating, he was convinced the fibres had not been manufactured on Earth. The strange pile of ash was also analysed and found to be the remains of an unidentified animal that is thought to have been incinerated when the object crashed into the mountain. Or perhaps, as others have suggested, it was the remains of something that had been travelling inside the object when it crashed. A few days after Dvodzilny's expedition, Dr. Skavinsky of the Academy of Sciences Institute of Geology and Geophysics led a follow-up expedition to the apparent crash site on Height 611. According to UFO investigator Leonard Stringfield, Skavinsky's team made yet another startling discovery. A remarkable similarity between the composition of steel alloy and iron fragments found at the site and material found in peat in the aftermath of one of Siberia and the world's most mysterious events involving the impact of something falling to Earth from space. It was early in the morning of June 30th, 1908, when residents of a village in North Karolinsky in central Siberia looked up to see a bright, bluish-white cylindrical object falling from the sky. Together, they watched it in awe as over the course of almost ten minutes, it fell steadily, closer and closer, to the ground. 400 kilometres to the northwest, at a trading post in Vanavara, surrounded by huge swathes of forest, local farmer Semen Semenov was sitting outside his house, eating breakfast. Moments later, he looked up in horror, when high above the trees to the north, the sky appeared to rip in two, and a great fire emerged from within it. The rip in the sky grew larger until it seemed as though the entire northern side of it was on fire. Just then, a great surge of heat tore through the air, and a tremendous thump was heard, after which the tear in the sky appeared to close up. This was followed by a second blast of hot air, lifting Semenov off his feet and throwing him back against the front of the house, knocking him out cold. Semenov came round to find his wife anxiously looking over him. After quickly hauling him up from the floor, she just managed to get him inside when they were suddenly pummeled by a deafening sound, as if a whole barrage of cannons were firing down on them from above. As the ground then began to shake, the couple threw themselves to the floor, fearing an imminent hail of projectiles that never came. Moments later, it was over. Getting back to their feet, the couple stepped from their cabin in a daze, looking about at all the glass that had been completely blown from the windows and at the peculiar streaks of flattened crops that had suddenly appeared in the fields around them. Some who also witnessed the extraordinary event are said to have run into the streets in wild panic, believing the end of the world was upon them. It is said that for days after, an eerie purplish glow lingered in the sky, 
with many across Western Siberia and even Europe observing it. Even as far as London in England, the glow was so bright the use of streetlights was completely unnecessary for the next three days. In Irkutsk, 800 kilometers to the south at the town's observatory, observatory director Dr. Arkady Voznesensky registered the violent event as an earthquake and placed its epicenter at somewhere between the Nizhnyaya and Podkomenia-Tunguska rivers. Though he may have been right about the epicenter, whatever it was that had taken place was no earthquake. In 1914, Russia's Tsar Nicholas II took Russia into the First World War. The conflict caught the already weakening Tsarist regime on the back foot, and with deaths mounting and food shortages back home, many of the people began to revolt. In March 1917, with many in the army by then also turning on the ruling powers, a revolution had begun that quickly descended into civil war. Due to this political upheaval and the sheer remoteness of where the peculiar blast had occurred, an area that was also surrounded by miles of forest and swampland, it wouldn't be until 1921 that an expedition was finally put together in the hope of establishing what had actually taken place. The expedition was led by famed Russian mineralogist Lenoid Kulik. Though his team were unable to reach the blast's epicentre, after collating a number of eyewitness accounts, he was left in no doubt that a meteor had smashed into the region, believing they would find the impact crater somewhere nearby to prove it. It would be another six years, however, before the government of what was then the Soviet Union allowed him to return to the region. Helped by hunters and trackers from the local Ivenk tribe, Kulik's expedition was able to venture much further than they had before, and soon they came across a harrowing sight. Hundreds of scorched and fallen trees flattened outwards, surrounding a central area comprised of more trees that despite being blackened and completely stripped of branches, had somehow been left standing, like telegraph poles as Kulik described it. Kulik knew instinctively they'd found the epicentre of the blast, only there was no crater to be seen anywhere. In its absence, Kulik maintained his original theory, suggesting that the swampy environment had been too soft for a crater to form in it. Kulik named the peculiar incident the Filimonovo meteorite. However, today it is more widely known as the Tunguska event. Without an impact crater to back up the meteorite theory, however, scientists were left scratching their heads as to what exactly took place and as more and more eyewitness accounts began to emerge, things only seemed to get murkier. While some described the object as being cylindrical, others claimed it was oval-shaped. Some also claimed they'd seen the object not only change trajectory during its fall, but also slow down prior to the explosion. Some saw it as a white bluish thing that moved slowly east to west, others that it was reddish in colour and moving at incredible speed from south to north. 
The many discrepancies in the eyewitness accounts has led some to speculate that the main fact have been not one object involved, but two. Then, in the aftermath of the devastating nuclear bombs dropped over Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan in 1945, writer Alexander Katsantsev went as far as to suggest that the Tunguska blast was actually a UFO crash, or perhaps the detonation of some kind of interplanetary weapon. In an intriguing twist, geomagnetic recordings made at Irkutsk Observatory of the event were found to be similar to what you might find after a nuclear blast. But perhaps even more startling was an idea proposed in 1973 that the event was the result of matter and antimatter colliding, a theoretically calamitous possibility which some believe could result in an explosion of such magnitude. In the 1960s, the size of the impacted area was estimated to have covered 830 square miles of forest and was shaped in an unusual pattern similar to a huge pair of butterfly wings, with somewhere in the region of 80 million trees having been flattened. Today, most scientists believe the Tunguska event was caused by some form of cosmic body entering the atmosphere that disintegrated before impact, although some have suggested that whatever it was possibly came in at such a shallow angle that it veered back off into space. Either way, over a hundred years after the event, there remains no definitive explanation for it. Back in Downogorsk, things were getting even stranger. With echoes of the Strugatsky brothers' story, Roadside Picnic, in which a strange anomalous zone is created on Earth in the wake of a mysterious visitation from an alien species, the area around the apparent crash site at Height 611 also developed a peculiar reputation. It was said that no insects populated the area in the wake of the crash, and that anyone who ventured there was quickly overwhelmed by a stifling sense of dread, causing their heart rate to increase and a near-total loss of coordination. All mechanical and electronic equipment used there was said to fail. Members of one expedition team who went there apparently reported that all their torches failed to work the moment they arrived, only discovering later, when they returned home, that many of the wires inside had been damaged. When the results of the tests conducted on the strange material found at the site began to circulate, one journalist suggested there was nothing unusual about it at all, believing it was simply a top-secret spy probe or space junk that had been manufactured in the USSR with regular materials that had long been known to exist. Others speculated it actually belonged to the United States government. However, in 1991, Colonel Jerry Felder of the USA's Space Command at Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado, in responding to a Freedom of Information Act request regarding the materials, stated that no large objects with ground paths were found to have crossed eastern USSR near Downogorsk at the time in question. One other explanation for the event was that the object was a fragment of the Space Shuttle Challenger that had exploded high up in the atmosphere only the day before. Despite the extraordinary coincidence, this theory has been dismissed 
Since the Challenger shuttle disintegrated at 46,000 feet above the Atlantic, for any piece of it to have made it as far as Downagorsk, over 11,000 kilometers away, it is estimated it would have to have reached 65,000 feet in height. After a series of subsequent UFO sightings in the region following the 1986 incident, in 2000, Russian newspaper Komsomolskaya Pravda reported that Russian Air Force generals were so alarmed by the growing number of sightings, they invited UFO researchers to work with them in trying to establish what was going on. In 2012, at the National Atomic Testing Museum in Las Vegas, an affiliate of the Smithsonian Institute, a number of mysterious items were put on display, said to have been taken from the crash site at Height 611. Inside a large glass case were a series of glassy-looking metallic spheres and pieces of metal in vials. A description read, Three Soviet academic centres and 11 research institutes analysed the objects from this UFO crash. The distance between atoms is different from ordinary iron. Radar cannot be reflected from the material. Elements in the material may disappear and new ones appear after heating. One piece disappeared completely in front of four witnesses. The core of the material is composed of a substance with anti-gravitational properties. Despite pieces of the material being examined at institutions from Vladivostok to Munich and Liège, their true provenance is a mystery that remains to this day unexplained. If you enjoy Unexplained and would like to help support us, you can now do so via Patreon. To receive access to ad-free episodes, just go to patreon.com forward slash unexplainedpod to sign up. Or if you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can go to unexplainedpodcast.com forward slash support. All donations, no matter how large or small, are greatly appreciated. Unexplained, the book and audiobook, featuring 10 stories that have never before been covered on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase through Amazon, Barnes & Noble and Waterstones, among other bookstores. All elements of Unexplained, including the show's music, are produced by me, Richard McLean Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. 
I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.